0: Okay, welcome back to the Wagner Review podcast series. I'm Kyle Rowland. My guest today is Anjana Sridhar. Anjana Sridhar is a recent NYU Wagner alum, having gotten her MPA in health policy and management in 2020. She has always been passionate about the intersection of racial equity and healthcare, having explored those topics through her research and marketing positions at advisory board prior to coming to Wagner. While at Wagner, Anjana served as the VP of Identity and Diversity in Public Service in WSA, the Wagner Student Association. Uh, She chaired the Wagner Diversity Council and was involved with the broader Wagner community. We discussed the multi-generational impact of policy and social realities on health outcomes. We discussed the concept of cause, correlation, and effect with regard to health indicators. We discuss the impact of history on health policy and the social realities of different demographic groups, and we end optimistically with some exciting new developments in the healthcare space. Overall, I think this is a great listen on the topic of uh, health anthropology, and I think you'll enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jana.
1: Thanks, Kyle. Good to be here.
0: Okay, so um, today we're going to be talking about public health and the role of public policy in contributing to health outcomes across different communities. Um, Before we get into that, could you give us a little bit of a background with regard to how you became interested in this topic and some of the work that you are doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I, as you've mentioned in my bio, I've always been passionate about the intersection between social equity and healthcare. And in my view, health is a public good that if one has the opportunity to access high quality healthcare, it can completely transform your life. So for example, if you're a child from a lower income neighborhood, but you happen to have access to high quality healthcare, that can mean leaps and bounds for your future as an adult. And so thinking through that lens, I'm thinking critically about ways in which we can build inclusive healthcare systems that care for the people who are most marginalized in our society. And a little bit about how I became interested in doing that work. Um, When I went to uh, NYU as an undergraduate student, I was very involved in inclusion and diversity efforts on campus. And I was also involved in those efforts at at my job at advisory board. But what I realized is that I don't necessarily understand the intersection of social equity and healthcare, And so I tried to make that more of a focus of mine at my job at advisory board by taking on different research projects that had to do with health equity and made it a priority of mine while I was at Wagner. And a couple of other things I wanted to share is that I've, re- I've realized that marginalized communities in the United States, they're often blamed for their health outcomes. So my position on the topic is that health is so inextricably linked to other facets of quality of life. So your health is not just contingent on your ability to get to the doctor's office, but it's contingent on where you live, what you eat, and what kinds of jobs you're allowed to hold. And that, to a certain degree, is contingent on the history of the community that you're a part of. So I think that all of those things have been bubbling up in my mind in the past couple of years and have made me interested in this work.
0: Right. So you're tackling a, uh, a challenging but important topic, and it really sounds like you are diving in to all of the different linkages and teasing out all of the different relationships between um, our our background, our socioeconomic position, our identity, as well as the public health structures in which we live, yeah. um, which is incredibly timely right now, considering the COVID pandemic, um, mm-hmm. which is at the fr- forefront of our minds. I feel like we can't proceed without discussing the role that that's had on society. And in addition to that, um, it's, it's affected people's understandings and conceptions of uh, health outcomes and how those outcomes are formed. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that um, in terms of the health outcomes that you are analyzing. What, how do people understand health outcomes? Mm-hmm. Uh, what numbers are we looking at? And uh, what are some of the issues that you see as you approach that topic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think as you rightly put it, COVID-19 and the current police brutality that's been highlighted uh, occurring with the Black community, which is at the forefront of what we're talking about, those are all inextricably linked to public health and public policy related to healthcare. So I think when it comes to looking at numbers, what I've been interested in analyzing is the likelihood of different com- different communities experiencing different chronic conditions right so there are lots of statistics around about how folks in the black community are much more likely to experience diabetes and hypertension compared to other communities native americans also have a high likelihood of experiencing diabetes hypertension depression anxiety a bunch of other uh, chronic conditions including mental health conditions and so what i'm really interested in looking at is understanding where those come from. I think for a very long time in medical science there was a story that was being told about genetic predisposition to certain diseases and while that might be the case, such as for sickle cell anemia among the Black community, that is not always the case for chronic conditions. The ways in which different communities develop chronic conditions are a product of their circumstances and are a product of the legacy that they have faced over time. So for example, when we're talking about the black community, which in this particular moment is very timely, we think about how segregated healthcare has allowed for black folks to experience low quality healthcare with with less resources. And that's led to development of diabetes, in some cases leading to amputation or um, out of control blood pressure as a result of not living near grocery stores that sell fresh produce. And the most important thing that I'm interested in focusing on is that those are not just circumstances that occur. Those are circumstances that have been made based on federal policy that has occurred over at this point, generations. And so when it comes to looking at numbers, I'm interested in looking at not only the rates at which different communities experience certain chronic conditions, but I'm also interested in looking at how years of history have really affected the ways in which people are able to access healthcare based on what community they're a part of.
0: So in a large sense, what you're touching on is the cross-generational impact that drives inequalities, um, mm-hmm. specifically with regard to health outcomes. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and the role that multi-generational inequities has on health outcomes.
1: No, that's a, that's a great question. So I think what I've seen in my work is, so that part of it is definitely policies that were passed a long time ago that have impacted people and their families across time, right? So when we're talking about multi-generational effects, we're talking about two things. One is access to resources. So we, I think we can talk about the Black community there for a second. Because of segregation and redlining and all of that kind of stuff, African-Americans were unable to purchase homes at the same rate as white Americans, which resulted in them not being able to pass that wealth down to their children. And so that's resulted in African-Americans today having far less wealth compared to white Americans because of not being able to have access to the resource of home ownership in a fair way. And I think a second part of it, and what I've discovered across all you know, vulnerable communities including race, ethnicity, and gender, is that because of these policies, that's developed a mistrust of public institutions. And I think there's lots of good reasons for that. So for example, in the Native American community, forced relocation over and over and over again, and broken promises made by the federal government have made Native Americans very hesitant to trust Western medicine or to trust the current American healthcare system. Similarly for Black Americans, uh, different experiments that have been done on them over time, including the Tuskegee experiment, where a bunch of African American men were given syphilis and were not adequately treated for it, despite the despite penicillin being made available, has made that community very mistrustful of medical institutions in the United States. So I think what's made, what's made that really fascinating is that there's this combination of lack of access to resources as well as mistrust in public institutions that has ultimately impacted both the access that vulnerable communities have to healthcare in the US as well as the health outcomes that they then that they then experience
0: so in your in your approach and in your research as you try to identify these causal relationships these cause and effects and you try to identify the root causes for a lot of the outcomes that uh, we are uh, that we're seeing in terms of in terms of our public health. What are you? What projects are you working on with that research? And I understand that you are writing a book.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So I am currently writing a book. The working title is Healthcare of a Thousand Slights. And what I'm interested in doing is compiling a history of the ways in which different communities have experienced healthcare over time. And the reason I wanted to do that is because I think especially those of us in the public health space, we tend to focus so much on public health and obviously on what's known as social determinants of health, which are these non-health factors that affect people's health outcomes. But we don't always focus on the history of why those factors are even a problem in the first place, right? So that's why for me, it's important to talk about what is the impact of, for example, forced relocation on Native Americans on the way, in the ways in which they access healthcare or what's the, impact on Im- what's the impact of immigration policy uh, on the ways in which uh, those who identify as Latinx and Asian are experiencing healthcare. So what I'm interested in doing is taking this research and translating it in a way that's meaningful and understandable for those of us who are in the public health community, as well as for people who, are, who may not be well-versed with, in public health, but are still interested in understanding why america is experiencing the health outcomes it's experiencing and in particular why these healthcare disparities exist in the first place
0: and so with your book and uh uh, and with with your research uh what information would you like the general public to be able to access i understand that some Mm -hmm. of it can be high level and some of it can be addressed to a more general population what specific subjects are you most interested in broaching for the public
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think for, especially for those who are not necessarily in the public health space, what I really want to focus on is this concept of causal storytelling. So when I was at Wagner, I had the privilege of taking Intro to Public Policy with Professor John Gershman. And in the second or third class, I remember we talked about causal storytelling and how it affects public policy making. So what that essentially means is what are the narratives that we're telling about different communities? And how does that ultimately impact the ways in which we build public policy? So, for example, if we believe the narrative that poor people in America are lazy and have to be held accountable, that translates into policies like work requirements for Medicaid. But if we tell a different story that the American poor are hardworking people, they tend to be people who are already working multiple jobs trying to put food on the table for their families, policymaking would then more adequately reflect that. Of course, as we know, um, as Wagner students in particular, policymaking is much more complex than that, right? But the idea of narrative informing policy is, is critically important. And so what I wanna show in the book for those who are not in the public health space is that we have been fed certain narratives over time, whether it's in the ways in which we've learned history, the ways in which the media portrays certain communities, whatever methods might exist, all of those methods have allowed us to develop certain narratives about certain communities. And that ultimately impacts the ways in which policy is built. And in this particular case, the ways in which public health policy is particularly built.
0: Right. And and accurate storytelling, uh, accurate representation in history text, and narratives and uh, nuance is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Um, However, it seems as though there are often misconceptions and misunderstandings about the outcomes as well as the causal relationships to those to those outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about where those misunderstandings come from, and how, and maybe in sp- maybe part- in particular, what misunderstandings you find to be most important for mm-hmm. society to to understand?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad that you you caught on this point of accurate storytelling and how important that can be. Both in the context of public perception of different communities as well as in public policy more broadly. So some of the misunderstandings I think come from attempts made at the the federal level, the state level, the local level of government to tell a certain story to its citizens.
0: It sounds as though public health policy often considers demographics or Mm -hmm. either, I don't know if it considers demographics in its strategy, or if it's intention or if it just that's a causal relationship to the policy it impacts mm-hmm. specific demographics in certain ways because of geographies or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but are identities included in policymaking discussions and discussions around the strategy of a, mm-hmm. of a public health policy?
1: So that's a really good question. So just to clarify the earlier part, I think at this point, a lot of policy is not necessarily identity specific. And I think that might be in an an attempt to ensure that policy making and implementation is as equitable as possible. The only ways in which I can think of identity being salient to policy making is when we're talking about Medicare and Medicaid, because those those forms of health coverage are specific to two types of people, right? Medicare covers the elderly, those who are over the age of 65, and Medicaid covers those who make below 125% of the federal poverty line. So in that case, like identity obviously impacts the ways in which those policies are written, but not necessarily in the case of other sorts of policies. Um, but I think in general, at this point, there are different federal agencies or branches of different federal agencies. So for example, um, Health and Human Services at the federal level has an Office of Minority Health. The New York C- New York City's Department of health and mental hygiene has a center for health equity that does a, that does a lot of research on health disparities so there is that research and that attention being given to the salience of identity especially in the context of health disparities but i wouldn't necessarily say that identity is at the center of policy making in the public health space
0: so um in terms of solutions and in terms of correcting the the these issues of misrepresentations of inaccurate narratives, as Mm -hmm. well as the broader picture of um, health outcomes that are not where we want them to be, Mm -hmm. um, as well as inequity in those health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, What innovations or solutions or change changes uh, are you hopeful for today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are a couple of examples that I highlight in my book And the first that I think about is the work of Dr. Mitchell Katz, who is currently the CEO of New York City Health and Hospitals located in New York. It's also the largest public health system in the United States. And the reason Dr. Katz comes to mind is because he used to work for public health departments and safety net hospitals caring for really vulnerable patients in California. And so when he was a medical director in LA and San Francisco, he had identified loopholes in California statutes that would allow him to start needle exchange programs. And this was during a time when needle exchange programs or giving money to rehabilitate those who were struggling with addiction was frowned upon in the 90s. But he was able to he was able to get his public health department on board to declare a public health emergency so that the needle exchange program could be set up. On. It was, that was the only circumstance in which something that taboo would be allowed. And the way in which he did that is he built coalitions with existing political stakeholders to get their perm- permission to subvert these existing policies. And the reason I think that's such an interesting story is we often talk about policy reform as a way to, tr- to make change. And while that's incredibly important, that may not always be politically possible. And so what Dr. Katz has done is taken a very tricky situation and recognized a vulnerable population in need of support and made do with existing circumstances to ensure that that population received the support that it needed. And so in this way, Dr. Katz was able to establish the, I think it was one of the first needle exchange programs in the United States. So that's an example of how one can subvert policy to create change. And so I advocate for that as a solution, especially in situations where transforming or reforming policy may not be possible. I think it's also important for us to think about technology as a a disrupting tool. And I bring up technology because I think for the most part in the health space, we talk about technology as this new and flashy thing, right? We talk about wearables and how our Apple Watch might track the number of steps we take and all this new and fancy research that might be taking place. But we're not always talking about how that technology can actually benefit those who are at the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder or who are at the lowest rung of American society. So one of the stories I want I highlight in the book is an interview that I did with a health tech leader from a startup called Healthify. And Healthify is also based in New York. And what they seek to do is bring different stakeholders together. So not only are they interfacing with health insurance plans and patients and all of the stakeholders you'd expect in a healthcare context, they also interface with social service organizations that provide critical resources like food and housing and transportation, and also connects with, you know, the different foundations and grant funding organizations that provide money to these social service organizations to do their work. And so by connecting these organizations by, by connecting these organizations, and relying on the support of foundations and helping health insurance companies recognize the critical work that social service organizations do, Healthify is able to support not only the financial sustainability of these social service organizations, but also ensure that the health of vulnerable community members isn't put at risk when funding isn't available for some reason. So those are just two examples, and I know I've spoken about both of them at length, but I think that we should be thinking critically in public health about policy and technology as two ways in which we can make meaningful change in the healthcare space for vulnerable communities.
0: Okay, uh, and Jana, thank you for joining the podcast today. I wanted to just open the floor in case you had any concluding thoughts that you could leave us with today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I've been doing research across time, I think one of the things that keep that, that keeps coming up in my mind is that in the US, we end up building policies and solutions, not out of compassion, but out of judgment and power. So I think thinking critically about how different institutions in the US wield political power and the power of policymaking is really important. And that power and judgment ultimately impacts different populations in the United States. And so that's one thing I want readers and listeners to be mindful of. But I also think that the way in which we move forward is Not necessarily just by thinking about building compassionate policy, but also recognizing the ways in which these, you know, false or harmful narratives about different communities have allowed for that judgment and power to pass different policies that have not been helpful to them. So once we have a clearer and more meaningful understanding of these narratives and where they come from and how they relate to health in particular, I think we can be hopeful for a better future in which policy is a tool used to lift up voices that aren't being heard and to lift up communities that aren't experiencing the healthcare that they should be.
0: Uh, Anjana, thank you for joining us on the podcast and for educating us on your your topic and letting us know about your book. I look forward to reading it uh, when it's ready. Uh, And once again, thank you for joining us on the podcast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The book comes out in December. I encourage anyone who's interested to feel free to reach out to me. And thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat, Kyle. Appreciate it.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the Wagon Review Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next time.